Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya, and today we're discussing chapters 26 through 29 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. So after we're done chapter summaries, I want everybody out there to guess who wrote, or which summary Caitlin wrote. (laughs) In chapter 26, The Abyss, the Harpies lead Lyra, Will, and the Galavespians on a very long walk through a very dark tunnel with all the ghosts trailing behind them. Along the way, they run into the ghosts of Lee Scoresby and John Perry. Will's dead. Being a shaman knows everything, everywhere, all at once. I really should have read this first. (laughs) Nice for him. (laughs) So he tells Will and Lyra to... So he tells Will and Lyra to find the spot on her head where a lock of hair is missing, use the sun knife to cut those strands down to the roots, and dispose of the hair through a window to another world. Shortly after doing so, the ground violently shakes, and one side of the tunnel falls away to reveal a gaping abyss. Eventually, they climb high enough for Will to cut a window for the ghost to escape, Roger is the first to cross the threshold, and he delights as his form disintegrates and merges with the rest of the universe. Lee and John decide to postpone their own merging with the universe in order to fight in Azrael's war, and John tells Lyra and Will that they must follow to Azrael's world because that's where their demons ended up. In Chapter 27, The Platform, the eponymous platform is now complete. So Mary jumps up to the top to investigate the cause of the reduction in the SRAF. Promptly, she is metaphysically swept away by a sudden tide of dust, carrying her consciousness away from her very being. She manages to fight it by sheer force of will and a little bit of sense memory, and returns to her body. Oh, also, turns out dust is sad that it's leaving. Meanwhile, Father Gomez arrives in the same world, commits a touch of Averside, and gains the obedience of the Raider Birds. In Chapter 28, Midnight, Mrs. Coulter wakes up as they arrive at Azriel's fortress. She retreats to her room and asks for Azriel's alethiometrist, alethiometrist to come and answer a few of her questions, which he promptly does. Yes, Lyra is alive. No, the bomb didn't get her. Yes, she's still in the land of the dead, though I have no idea why. Meanwhile, Azriel and King Agunwe watch on as the clouded mountain, Metatron's transformer lair, moves into view. <laughs> Azrael reminds King Agunwe of the power of flesh as preparations for the rebellion begin around them. Azrael learns that Metatron's targets are Lyra and Will's demons, and so forms a plan around keeping them safe as long as he can, alongside maybe taking care of that meddling archangel. He and Mrs. Coulter proceed to have a quiet moment where they explain themselves to each other, yes, again, and set off to play their parts. 
In Chapter 29, Will and Lyra pass through the big battle searching for their demons and discover they are now susceptible to specter attacks. That's it. <laughs> I like how we all wrote summaries, and but not necessarily the ones that we read. <laughs> Though I did read mine. Yeah. I think that is very clear. All right, all right, all right. General feelings, folks. Well, like everybody else, this is my favorite section <laughs> of the book uh, because of all the biblical allusions that are in it and like the complexity of how it reflects all of these philosophical and religious ideas going on in the background. So it's the best part. Uh, I feel like reading this the way that we've done it, this all feels very disjointed. But, like, again, we took, like, a six-month break. And also, I think if you're just sitting down to read the book, these are all pretty short chapters, and they go by fast. And then you just, like, continue to the next part. So I don't think it feels disjointed if you're just reading the book. To me, it just feels like a lot of setup. Like, it's obviously winding up to the big climax of the whole three books. And yet there are some little bits on the side that need tidying up there's little things which weren't quite explained where they needed to be loose ends that just needed to be tied up and so it sort of feels like that's all done here at the same time yeah there's something about the scope or tone or like it does feel a bit like moving chess pieces around or almost it's like reciting a legend as opposed to a novel like, it feels a little bit rushed and not as intimate as um, the previous books and other parts of this book. Yep, so the best part. Right. right. Okay, okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of best parts, what's everyone's favorite part? Uh, I'll go first. Um, this is the first bit, I guess, where... Philip Pullman really like literally just writes down the theme of the whole series. And I really love it when John is talking to Will and he says, we have to build the Republic of Heaven where we are, because for us, there is nowhere else. It's my favorite part. My favorite part was definitely Lee when he's thinking about becoming one with the universe. And he just goes, he's talking about all the, you know, seeing Hester again and his mom like the sage plains or something and he goes my sweethearts all my sweethearts and i love the i love the implication there that lee has a girl in every port and yet he also really looks forward to being one with them in death like it's very very <laughs> wholesome indeed <laughs> it's like lee is somehow like the least wholesome and the most wholesome character in yeah, these books exactly <laughs> Heart of gold, surrounded by a rough, crusty leather exterior. I picked having Roger go first through the gateway. It feels like kind of metaphorically closing things for Lyra. Like this gives her like literal psychological closure on feeling guilty about his death and all that stuff. But it also like resonates with the stuff that I've talked about with Gnosticism, where Lyra is like this kind of Eve character and, and Adam was like trapped in, you know, the universe and wisdom comes to release him from that. This, this literally happens here, but it's like all turned around inside out in a way that I think is cool. So like, 
I, there's like emotional catharsis, but a lot of like symbolism and allusions to different things simultaneously that is satisfying to me as a reader. Like this is the kind of thing that I really like as a reader. So, And the prose is really nice too. I actually also picked Roger going through the window as my favorite part. Um, I actually wrote it out. So maybe I'll just read it. Um, he took a step forward and turned to look back at Lyra and laughed in surprise as he found himself turning into the night, the starlight, the air. And then he was gone, leaving behind such a vivid little burst of happiness that Will was reminded of the bubbles in a glass of champagne. I also really like that bit. And Pullman has never confirmed this, but you could also read it as another one of his riffs on Narnia. Uh, mm. Because at the end of Prince Caspian, the Pevensies come back to our world first, you know, in the doorway that they make for everybody. But for them, it's more like they're leaving the good place. Right. I, I did find it funny. Just <laughs> Roger gets to go first. Imagine if it had been horrible. Like Roger oh, already no! had a traumatic death. <laughs> it's like Raiders of the Ark yeah. face melting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're all beaming on like, you go, buddy. <laughs> He's like... <laughs> I think I think there are lots of beautifully written passages in these four chapters too that are a lot like that. This is Pullman's a really good writer, but he he shines when he's talking about those very like materialistic. There's like a whole thing in there about like Mary remembering like the feeling of scraping off frost from her windshield and stuff like that that all is like so beautifully grounded and like the way that he piles it on top of each other is just really well done. You know, I actually didn't take a single note during Mary's chapter, and I think it was, like, a very good chapter. It was just so disjointed from everything else that was happening, although yeah. with the with the dust, it kind of does, like, bring everything all together. So I liked that. Uh, it didn't feel important, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. She's not part of the battle or the lead up yeah. to it at all. But you can tell that it's happening simultaneously. Yes. Uh, my least favorite part, which I can talk about forever if anybody wants me to is uh, John Perry showing up and just being like, I'm a shaman, so I magically know all these things the plot needs in order to continue. That was basically mine, too, if you couldn't tell from the way that I wrote it in the yeah. summary. I'm also, <laughs> like, a little bit torn on Asriel just so easily accepting that Lyra is more important to him in this, like, grand existential spiritual battle because, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, like, one of the big points of the book, right, is that he has spent the whole time thinking that he's so important and making all these moves and building up this army and giant fortress, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, ultimately, it's what Lyra's doing that matters the most. And, I don't know, he's just been so ego-driven this whole time. I don't know, maybe I would have liked to see him just, like, fight that a little more or like emotionally come to terms with it instead of just being like oh yes this is how it is i hope they play it differently in the show yeah definitely the thought just crossed my mind that i don't know why i thought this but now i've thought it is not going away from my head asriel feels like he'd be into nfts and really think yeah. they're a cool <laughs> idea oh yeah he's a musk fan 100 yeah. oh, percent yeah. <laughs> And and he thinks it's the best fucking thing for the oh world. Oh, my God. 
I mean, he kind of is Elon Musk, right? The intention craft yeah. does have self-driving, right? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't invent that. Oh, that's fair, actually, yeah. Um, but as far as his ego is concerned, he does have that bit where he's like, imagine bringing somebody like her into the world or blah, 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 where like he very obviously takes credit for her existing. Like, fuck off, bro. I love how him and Mrs. Coulter were so down with murdering children. And now that it's like children who are going to save the world or save the things that they want to save, they're like, yeah, we love these kids. Mm hmm. Fuck off. I honestly read this, and I think it's because of the experience of doing this podcast and like Caitlin's influence over the whole thing. Because I like took Asriel very like at face value in the first book. Like, of course, everything he's saying is true, and this is the way that it is. And Caitlin was like, no, he's lying. Everything comes out of his mouth is a lie. And so when I read this, I was like, well, he's just telling them whatever he needs to to stay in charge. I mean, the alethiometer is saying this, so he can't contradict it. He has to like fold it into his plan and being like, you know, this, this is the most important thing. And I will tell everyone how to do the most important thing so that I'm in charge of the most important thing. You know, like that's how I read it is not that he actually cares about Lyra and Will, but that he cares about being in charge. I see. And he does make it so that like, well, he's like, oh, yeah, this is why I amassed all this army. It was all along, the plan was for me to protect her. I'm, uh, to be fair, he does. I don't think he's saying that was my plan all along. He's saying, you know, that was fate's oh, plan. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It was yeah, exactly. Teleology. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> No, Alan, down. <laughs> <laughs> it was that particular part, like, really stood out to me because it's almost exactly the same way that uh, the leader of the of the church says it about like the whole reason the church came into existence might be just so yeah. we can hunt down Lyra and kill her. Like this yep. might be the reason we exist. I was like, wow, that is like very intentionally parallel right there. My least favorite part, kind of as you said earlier, Pullman is an excellent writer, which means that just occasionally he'll write something which is not his best writing and it really stands out. So there's this passage where uh, Samaki is feeding her dragonfly off her own blood. And it says, if Lyra had seen her, she would have offered hers since there was more of it. But like, Lyra didn't see it. Lyra didn't know about this. Lyra didn't have this thought. So we shouldn't be getting hypothetical Lyra's hypothetical thoughts. It's just <laughs> clumsy. <laughs> I don't think I noticed this. <laughs> it it's is just, pretty weird. It's now just, that it's just like, oh yeah, Lyra's a good person. Well, no shit. We've read three books of that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does feel very much like he wrote the bit where Salmachia was offering her blood, and then his editor was like, why wouldn't why wouldn't it just be Lyra's blood? They're yes, giant yeah. in comparison. And then Philip Pullman just threw that in as an explanation. <laughs> threw it back on the editor's desk like, fuck you, it's finished. Yeah. <laughs> Scrawled in like red gyro. <laughs> Which like, again, I can respect, I guess. Yeah, I do. <laughs> seems a little petty, but you're, it does read clunky. I, my least favorite part was kind of similar where there's a lot of cool imagery in chapter 29, the last one that we had on here, where the battle actually like kicks off. But it's so like chaotic, the way that it flashes from thing to thing. It's actually hard for me to follow what is even happening. So I don't know. I had a hard time actually following the 
motion of the battle or the beginning of the motion of the battle. Yeah, I'm excited to see how they do that in the show. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it could be really cool, especially as long as they don't make it like a big, like this side meets this side across the plains battle. Yes, yeah. like they have. I really want them to do something cool with it, and I love the idea that they could be in the world of the dead, just like cutting windows out to look at different things. Ooh, I like mm-hmm. that. And seeing like chaos on the others, and be like, oh. Because they kind of had a moment like that where they were like, wait, 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 what's over there? And then Will goes and cuts a window over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uncountable ghosts crowd around like, Ooh, yeah. ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this actually brings up an interesting... Now, this is a purely theoretical point, right? But would it have been sensible for Asriel to put a lot of his immediate construction work... He created a fortress really pretty quickly. Once he knew about the world of the dead... Surely he should have just created some sort of tramway to go from the entrance <laughs> to that exit. And then any time one of his soldiers dies, they go there, they get on the tram, they, they sit there, and then the harpy conductor says, you know, tell me a few stories, ticket please. And then you get back on the battlefield. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a shuttle line. <laughs> like an underground Elon Musk shuttle. This is going to that... be like the eighth book in this series. <laughs> <laughs> or in this world. Uh, so for problematics, I only saw things that we've already talked about, like the shamanism and mm-hmm. that. And just I, I again was reminded that I hate when there are two races in this world, and one is good and one is bad. Yeah, <laughs> which is just, just sort of brought home with Father Gomez finding the Tuolafi or or allying himself with the Tuolafi, while Mary, you know, the good person, aligned herself with the good race. Ooh, but, like, I like pointing that out. I, mm. That didn't occur to me, but yeah. So a dust update. Yeah, I think this is one of the most important parts if you're trying to figure out what dust is in the entire series. One I think. of the most confusing parts. It's pretty but... confusing. It is. <clears throat> but we do get this, you know, this, like you said, a kind of non sequitur chapter with Mary where she gets like pulled out of her body, like astral projection happens and she's like pulled along by the motion, the literal particle motion of dust is like pulling her to the abyss. And then she's able to go back to her body and reverse the flow of the particles that are associated with her back to her body by like, it's super interesting to me because like these things are, have to do with consciousness or they are consciousness or they're influenced by consciousness. And so there's like a whole thing of like, are we mind? Are we body? Is there a difference there? And, and you know, it's been dealing with this for three books. And according to like the cave chapter where she talks to the to the computer and she's like, you know, like, what are you? Um, the particles say like, we are matter. We are concerned with matter. Um, and so you, you might expect, or at least I did expect that when she's like trying to get out of the flow of these particles and she's going to like think her way back into her body, that it would be like some kind of high minded platonic abstract, like do math or think high philosophical thoughts or like the nature of good and evil. But it's like the frost on her windshield. It's like touching fruit or like eating things. You know what I mean? Like it's these very embodied experiences And that's what 
changes the direction of dust, the the motion of it, which is just super interesting to me as like a commentary that Pullman is making on what consciousness is about. It's not about this like high mindedness. It's about being in our bodies, being ourselves. And that's like, I don't, that's like very countercultural in a way and like super interesting and like rejects a lot of the Western tradition of like your body is a dirty, bad thing that you should be ashamed of. It's like, it's the most glorious thing and your consciousness should celebrate it and enjoy it and experience it and not be ashamed of it and not run from it. I feel like is, is part of what's happening here. I agree. And I also really liked that section. I'm surprised she didn't think back to that one orgasm that she's ever had. <laughs> For fuck's sake. I'm sure she's had more than one. Definitely just one. <laughs> so consciousness can be separated from the body in this world? Is that her ghost? Yeah, that's how I read it. Is This is her ghost I also feel like you could interpret it as she was just dreaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was yeah, it a metaphor? Uh, well, yeah. I, I don't know about a metaphor, but Lee has a very similar experience at the end of the previous book where he, while he is literally dreaming... Oh, but there was a shaman there. They can do whatever the fuck they want. I also just liked that there's a bit where she talks about like the other particles of dust wanting to go back with her, mm. but the, the stream just being too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's so interesting because they're just little particles. Why do they want things? Yeah, they want things, right? Yeah, they and they have an awareness somehow yeah. of like their directionality and stuff. They are the cause of want. R- yeah, are they are the they? cause? Are they attracted to it, or do they, is it like a loop? Right. I I also thought, as far as dust goes in this, you guys tell me what you think about this. But there's a lot of the characters, different characters, Lyra, Will. Uh, Lord Asriel and especially Mrs. Coulter all experience like extreme exhaustion uh, after the formation of the abyss. But it just seemed like there's an association there, but maybe it's just me doing this of like the dust gets funneled away and everybody's just like, I can't read the alethiometer. Mrs. Coulter is like, you know what? I should have been a mom and you should have been a dad. We should have fucking done our job instead of all this bullshit that we got up to our whole lives as real. And he's like, what? Like, <laughs> to it be just fair, seems he, to change she, everyone's personality. She, she does more go, we should have got married and like done that thing. It's still a little selfish. Like there's definitely a bit of, there's definitely mm-hmm. a bit of like, man, we had a good thing. Yeah, she doesn't say we should have stopped torturing children. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's actually in their vows. But yeah, no, I, yeah. I don't. I just, I want to keep in mind, like Azriel and Mrs. Coulter do one good thing in their whole life, and they haven't done it yet. So don't mm-hmm. give them too much credit. Like, <laughs> the the there is a trend in Mrs. Coulter towards that sort of self awareness. It's just starting to peek through, but even then. She's a terrible person. <laughs> Asriel's somehow worse. That's because he thinks he's a good person. Yes. Mrs. Coulter does not think she's a good person. No, exactly. Um, But for Mrs. Coulter, and I... God, again, it's been a while, but I think maybe I've brought this up before. I've always thought, you know, she didn't want to be a mom. She had a baby and she was like, ugh. And, you know, gave that away. 
But then as soon as the baby was like a talking, intelligent human person, she was like, oh, wait, now I'm interested. You know, I have this daughter and I don't want her to go through the shit I went through. And she's smart and she's a human person. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I've always thought of it, that she didn't realize that she liked this idea of having a relationship with Lyra until Lyra was older and she could relate to her more. And she understood that Lyra was a young woman who was also stuck in this world run by men. Speaking of things that make no sense. Science. Oh. Science. Yes, science. (laughs) The entirety of science makes no sense. Actually, there's a pretty good argument for that. So you mean, like, we've already talked about how, like, the bomb itself doesn't really make sense in terms of quantum entanglement, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of how it, like, he puts it through a window into another world, and yet it physically affects his world and actually all the worlds, apparently. Yes. Oh, that, I have a, a, like, a headcanon that makes total sense to me. Well, so... There's there's a few things there which I which don't make sense to me. One of which is purely a inconsistency thing, which is hair is not just the bit sticking out. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's stupid. Root. Yeah, he needed to just like cut her whole scalp out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the oh, harpy would have been oh, way better. Back equipped. to season one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, trepanning. Tr- and and oh, in fact, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we saw it. And also, actually, it would have been funny if one of the harpies had just seized that hair and then blown up in the corner. They'd be like, oh, what was that? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, to be fair, I think I think from the scope of the explosion, we, we could understand that it, everybody would have it died. It would have died. Yeah, everybody would have died. Because I, I yes. feel like they didn't understand yes. how big that explosion was going to be, which... Which brings me to the second point. Yes. We know that ripping a hole between worlds is possible by sacrificing a person, essentially. We know that it creates a, a level of explosion, but also like the level of explosion which tears not just through between worlds, but into the nothingness of not worlds. Like this bomb surely must be an order of a few a few orders of magnitude bigger than the previous one in terms of scope. And I don't quite know why. My headcanon as to why this happens is that Will didn't quite finish closing the window before it went off. And so the bomb got into that open bit. Like, not back into where they were in the world of the dead, but like the window itself. And that's what the abyss is. The in-between bits. That's how it makes sense to me. That's just, that's how, that's what I go with. Right, okay. Even then, surely that would imply that the... The, if that's only a portion of the explosion, tearing the like, I don't quite know. I think it's also fair to point out that I think this is the first time they had used it as a bomb. Mm-hmm. So nobody knew what was going to happen. Yeah, it's a very weird form of assassination, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why they have Gomez as a backup. <laughs> Just in case the world-ending explosion didn't do it. <laughs> They've got the dude with a gun. <laughs> we we fired three nukes and a hitman. Hitman will be a there hitman. in nine weeks. <laughs> He's currently in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Customs. <laughs> the whole thing that happens is not the plan. Like, the plan was to blow up the girl. They had no clue that, like, yeah. this would happen. Because even if it did blow her up, I would assume that something like this would still happen. 
I mean, not if you take Caitlin's headcanon. Yeah, it would have just blown up the world of the dead, and they all would have been stuck at the beginning for eternity, which also would have been shit. What happens if you die in the world of the dead? You have a real short journey. <laughs> this yeah. is Groundhog Day. You're like, oh fuck. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, they would have gone into the abyss, so they would never have gone to the world of the dead. They would have just fallen forever. That is true. So I find it interesting that. Apparently, in this world, ghosts are made up of atoms. I'm taking this, I think, mostly from dialogue, right? And what Lee says. But it just, it seems like ghosts are this weird mix of, like, they are matter. They're not really corporeal, right? Like, they, when Lyra's falling off the cliff, the ghost try and save her and she goes straight through them. Like, they don't. They don't, obviously, like, ghosts are different than a physical body, but they still seem to have some kind of matter. And that just, I don't know. I found it, like, a little bit confusing. I don't know if any of you have thoughts on that. We definitely hit problems if ghosts have matter. Or, like, how are the atoms of a ghost different than the atoms of a physical body? Like, what makes ghosts ghosts and body body? I mean, yes, obviously, uh, yes. I mean, the, the, I think the there's clay- just more of them in a body is part of it. Well, there were, there were experiments a while back. Well, I say a while back, like, turn of the century. Looking at whether, Yeah, looking at whether when people died, they weighed less... Because their spirit is gone. I mean, quote-unquote experiments. Uh, I mean, you could... No, I mean, they're a perfectly reasonable experiment. You weigh them before and after death, and you say... Yeah, but that's difficult to do. Without killing someone directly. No, 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 no. They they measure people who were dying. Listen, some people need to die to discover things. This was... It's known. (laughs) I understand what you're saying, but, like, when do you you do the before measure? Before they die. How do you... (laughs) But like two years. How do you know years? when they're gonna die? Yeah. How do you know when <laughs> they lost Convenient a little weight knives. as they died from consumption? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I have actually listened to a podcast about this, and it was a little. It was, it was a little. It iffy. was a bit. Yes, it turns out. <laughs> but yeah, also like it. They they were like, yeah, there's no difference. So yeah, like the point here being that it, we are already fundamentally changing how life works here in order to have a soul that has mass if it has mass we can also answer questions like how many ghosts can you fit in a box yeah okay, but this is sure. no different than any of the questions that we've had about demons because technically the demon is their soul this is their ghost it that is mm-hmm. true it's not like do demons have to eat like we've talked about this the ghosts don't seem to need sustenance although they do seem to like the warmth of the living like they yeah they do enjoy that energy, I guess, because that's what warmth is. Basically, the ghosts have to have mass. They do have yes. mass, yeah. I get what he's trying to do with the metaphor, and I actually really like it, right? Because he's saying that it's a commentary on the idea that, like, eternal life isn't all it's cracked up to be the atoms of the ghost dispersing and becoming one with the universe is like our physical bodies when we die decaying Mm -hmm. and becoming one with the universe um and that trying to like find the beauty in that 
and that that is actually better than having some sort of like shitty eternal life in a shitty afterworld. And so in order for that metaphor to work, there has to be some kind of matter in the ghost to become one with the universe, to become the stars, become the the light and the dew on the grass or whatever. Um, but it, it does, like, cause some scientific problems if then you have, like, orders of matter. I realize this might be terrible, but I do think there's, like, scientific matter and then there's theological matter. Interesting. Oh, I think you Pullman know, would... It, within these books. I think Pullman would hate that. I think Pullman no. would hate that. <laughs> That you well, say that. he fucking wrote it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that some things you can weigh and feel and touch, and some things you just kind of got to brush aside and be like, yep, that's what he meant, and carry on. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think that his world building is deliberately and specifically non-supernatural. In philosophical terms, he's what's called a monist. So only that means that only one thing exists, as opposed to like... Descartes is called a dualist because he says, on the one hand, there's your body, which is made out of, you know, physical material. And then there's your mind or soul or spirit. And that's a different kind of material. I don't know if I agree with you on that. That that's how Descartes feels or that. No, that that Pullman is more of a monoist than a dualist. I think that's what he thinks he did in his writing. But the whole first book is about how, and like arguably a lot of the stories, how you can't, like that they just become nothing when they don't have their souls. And they have that really uh, conversation with Lyra and um, I think Farter Coram where she says, you know, I can see my soul and my body and then there's the part of me that does the thinking. Right. And what would have happened to Mary here if she had gotten dragged along? What would have yeah. happened to her body? It would have been like the specter people. So I don't think he's trying to say that at all. And, and like the whole point of letting the people of the dead out is to reunite them with, with the, the rest of them. Well, what I guess what I mean is that everything is made out of atoms. There's only atoms in his Dark Materials universe. Not that people are only made out of like in the Cartesian okay, okay. sense. But the, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that only atoms exist to make things out of. Now, those things could be like ghosts and demons and angels and, you know, all the all of this stuff. But it's all the same kind of stuff. But for Descartes, okay. it's not the same kind of stuff. There's two different stuffs. And somehow they interact with each other. And I think Pullman is saying, no, there's only atoms. And then after that, like, we can make anything we want out of atoms. But we, but there's no supernatural stuff. I see. I see. So that's why it's important that the ghosts be made out of atoms. They're just like slightly differently put together or something. Yeah, somehow. And the same thing for angels, right? Because we had the one angel that Azrael was interviewing and then someone like opened the door to the tent flap and it like, psh, he's gone. So like their bodies, and he even says it here to to King Agungwe, Our, we have bodies and like our bodies are way more awesome than angel Oh, yeah. We can beat up all the angels because we're so right. much stronger. <laughs> Ever since we decided that Lord Azrael was Elon Musk, I just <laughs> hate him even more, you know? Like, everything he says now, I'm just like, oh, I want you dead. When it comes to questions like this, I think our instinct, we want this to come down to some kind of 
like epistemological question, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, where you see like all of the, like the angels have wings and there's all this, you know, like weird supernatural stuff happening with the demons. And you want to like look behind the curtain and see the person pulling levers at some point in this story and be like, oh, here's the real truth about what's going on. But I don't think Pullman is not constructing like a thing where, you know, the God mountain is actually like a giant machine that appears to be supernatural. It's just all matter that is arranged in a way that is like, we don't understand, but is still like somehow, you know, possible. This reminds me a bit of um, process-based philosophy in terms of it doesn't, to, to us at this point, it doesn't matter the exact mechanics of everything. The truth that you have in front of you is that this thing is, and for the purposes of what we're trying to do, i.e. understand the story, it doesn't really matter if we don't understand the bits underneath. So like, for, you know, that you can have set truths even if you don't understand or know where everything is kind of underlying it. For instance, if you're trying to find um if you're if you're trying to find your way to the shops from your house, do you need to know the position of every atom in order for that way to be the true way? No, you don't. You just need to know that there is a road. In, in terms of your epistemological point there, Alan, like by platonic epistemology, yeah, sure. We don't we don't know everything, thus ah we don't know the truth. There's no platonic truth. We're fucked. But by much more modern kind of ideas of epistemology, we're like, well, does it really matter? Right. Um, religion. Well, we already have kind segue. of been talking about religion. No, fuck you. Religion. We already did a segue. Oh my god. <laughs> no. Were you even paying attention? <laughs> I'm going to segue, but I'm going to do it better. I'm going to muskian segue, where Ugh. I just do it, but again and worse and way more expensive. A muskian segue on would Twitter. be on a literal segue. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he just did that off a cliff. <laughs> I think this is where Pullman's grand scale critique of religion really comes into focus he's basically like imagine how shitty it would be if everything described in the bible was actually true and all of those spiritual forces like existed and then like tried to get involved in our lives on earth he takes something that some religious people might see as like a good thing and casts it in a a horror kind of way um so like i pulled out this quote um if he wins this battle he intends to intervene directly in human life imagine that a permanent inquisition worse than anything the consistorial court of discipline could dream up staffed by spies and traitors in every world and directed personally by the intelligence that's keeping that mountain aloft god and angels you know as described in the Bible, like, there's so much fighting, there's a lot of egos involved. It just, it would be a fucking nightmare, right? Like, everything described in the Bible is actually just kind of a nightmare if you actually sit and think about it. It's atheist in the sense that it is, like, a critique of Christianity and opposed to Christianity, but not necessarily arguing that 
God doesn't exist, just that if God did exist, it would be bad. Yeah, I think I think it posits the idea that there can be like morality that is divorced from religion or the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Like there mm-hmm. can be the idea that goodness is a thing that might exist absent of because God said so. Mm-hmm. And all of these people are basically like, we have to do this because the authority is God and right. and said, yeah. And so therefore this is good and to not do it is bad. And Azriel is saying, no, life is good and existence is good and being in the universe is good and the authority makes all of that bad. Uh, and therefore we should oppose the authority because on those grounds, because the authority is doing a bad thing. Like there's a higher order of morality than than God and has God has to appeal to that authority in order to justify his authority over all of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically just a big power trip. Like that's yeah. all religion is. From Pullman's perspective. From Pullman's perspective. Yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind in these books God isn't here. God isn't in this story. Right. Because the authority is just the first angel that came into existence. And then when everything came into existence after him, he just said, yeah, I made you. Like, that is part of the the world building in this story. Nobody ever actually, there, there's no input from an actual creator in this story. Although maybe our meeting on Dust will change that uh, thought. <laughs> but like, um, so I think, that is what you just said is literally it there this whole thing is a lie that's what it's saying it's not saying right. god is bad or evil it's saying religion is a lie and everyone's bought into it you can really tell he went to catholic school <laughs> it's a lie that's about power yeah 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 about self-justifying power yeah this time uh i thought it would be important to talk about an event that's kind of not in the Bible, uh, called the harrowing of hell. In the Bible, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Christian theology, this means that the only way to go to heaven is through a knowledge of Jesus's life and sacrifice. So therefore, everyone who died before Jesus was born went to hell, even if they were a hero of the Bible, like Abraham or Noah or King David. Like, this is just a theological necessity of logic, if that claim is true on Jesus's part. We are so lucky. <laughs> very lucky, right? <laughs> uh, this makes this like a very serious theological contradiction for early Christians. The idea that King David is burning in hell, it, like, is distressing. Um, so the doctrine of the harrowing of hell was constructed to explain how Jesus died on the cross, he went to hell as a spirit, he gathered up all the spirits of the people who had faithfully followed God's way before Jesus was born, and then he delivered those spirits to heaven. And previous to this, had it only been inhabited by God and the angels, like there was no people there. And then Jesus returned to his body and was resurrected on Easter day. Okay, so this is the crucifixion, you know, Jesus dies on Friday. He goes down to hell on Saturday, brings everyone up to heaven, and then on Sunday he goes back to his body and is resurrected. 
That's why we get a four-day weekend, and it's not just the next day. Right. (laughs) So what we're really exploring here is the theological uh, explanation for bank holidays. Wonderful. I appreciate King David a lot more now. (laughs) Uh, This event, it it doesn't appear in any of the Gospels, though. Like, if you went to go look this up, and you said, I want to read about it in the Bible, I'm sorry, it's not there. At best, it's, like, implied in various scripture scattered across the new testament kind of because the bible is like written in a testimonial way like i saw jesus do this i saw jesus do that like who's gonna watch this event happen it would like have to be written by jesus or something so there's no gospel written by jesus which seems like an oversight i mean not everyone can be a good writer you know sometimes you need <laughs> ghost writers he, there's no he was the oh, word. fucking he, he literally... seriously <laughs> Just because you can turn water into wine doesn't mean you can write a compelling story. I know. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He had better things to do than to, like, study structure and, you know, put in the 10,000 hours. Anyway, uh, so the reason I bring up the harrowing of hell is because in these chapters, Lyra and Will lead the ghosts to a window that will allow them to cross to the world of the Mulefa, like, when they open that up. I don't know if that's, like explicitly said there but it's i think it's pretty obvious from the descriptions of like the beautiful trees and how natural everything looks that's the mulefa world that roger goes into and it's a eden-like place in the book of revelation john saint john describes paradise and there's a lot of parallels between eden and heaven in his description and so i feel like this is you know, Lyra and Will leading these spirits to heaven the way that Jesus led the people who were trapped in hell to heaven. This progression of chapters is like the harrowing of hell. So in a sense, Lyra and Will are leading the dead to heaven, uh, but it's inverted because they cease to exist as a consciousness, right? They're not going to heaven to like be there and be happy forever. They're going there to like not exist anymore as a separate consciousness from reality. Okay, so another parallel that's happening here that I think dovetails with the harrowing of hell is the Battle of Armageddon. Will makes a window to Lord Azrael's world so that some of the ghosts can fight the forces of the authority, a.k.a. God. Um, And in the final book of the Bible, St. John witnesses a battle between the greatest human army in history gathered from warriors across the earth and versus Jesus and his saints. Okay, so Lord Azrael has assembled his army from people across many different universes who are all opposed to the authority. And in this way, Azrael is like the leader of the evil humans in the Bible, aka the Antichrist. But at the same time, Lyra and Will are like Jesus because they're leading a host of heroic spirits into battle, except those souls are fighting against God. So it like has the same structure, but it inverts the content. Like the meaning of the content is 180 degrees out of phase. Um, So Pullman has used the structure of Christian stories and theologies, but he's inverted the content as a way to like, this is commentary, like, uh, like Anya was saying about, you know, this is commentary on religion and like, what if all of this was real? God is an oppressive warmonger. Choice is better than judgment. Material existence is greater than abstract consciousness. The body is not a prison for the soul. It's the greatest achievement of physical matter. And so Pullman creates a scenario that ties together 
the Battle of Armageddon at the end of history, the rebellion of Lucifer before the start of history, and the resurrection of Jesus at the center of history. All of these things are happening at the same time and feeding into each other in this part of the book. So this is kind of why I like this part of the book so much, because Mm -hmm. it kind of like takes the whole Bible and like turns it inside out uh, in really crunchy ways, I think. Yeah, I can see all of that now in in ways that were not clear to me before as someone who does not know the Bible very well. I think the story is fine without knowing this stuff. It's mm-hmm. just interesting. I think it's deliberate too. <clears throat> but that's uh that's all the religion stuff that I had for this for this time. Uh so I just had a couple other notes about the text of the chapters. Um, when they're doing their little little hike through the world of the dead, one of the ghosts asks Lyra, who gave you the authority? Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a great bit of writing, considering the bad guy in this is always called the authority. And then we have that bit with Gomez killing the dude, and I was maybe just going to bring this up in the religion section, but whatever. Um, so he kills, like, a, a bird who is also a person, and he says, like, he realizes that they are persons because they understand the threat and everything uh but he didn't pre-atone for that one did he he just pre-atoned for lyra (laughs) he spent his he got one jail (laughs) one credit yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) he spent his credit see i mean i think we could argue that the tulapi are people but i don't think he sees them as people i think he's He's very much a biblical literalist who thinks that God gave man authority over all of the animals of the earth and even the animals of other earths. I I guess I just wondered if it would keep him up at night, but I guess probably not. Uh, I already talked about Azrael. Oh, and then you mentioned when Azrael and Mrs. Coulter are having their little heart-to-heart in this one. or She brings up uh, at the end of the first book when he asked her to go with him. And he said, we destroy dust forever. And she's like, but that's not at all what you actually wanted. And he says, I thought you would prefer a lie. I just... I like that. Like, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, I guess you could interpret that with, like, where she was. Maybe he thought that, you know, destroying dust was what she wanted. But just the idea that lying is a preferable thing to her. Hmm. Well, so she would prefer it because it's a lie. Not the, like the content doesn't matter. Yeah, it's that it is a. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because they're both such master manipulators. Mm-hmm. I love it. I mean, I I do like their professional respect for each other in that capacity. But <laughs> yeah. I I, I, yeah. I did also I I did read this more as him being like, I thought you'd basically I thought you'd buy the lie. Honestly, I didn't think you'd come with me if you have the truth, and you don't. You don't think less of me because I'm lying, because you do the same shit. I've always interpreted it that way, also, but I think it's both because the sentence he says is "prefer a lie." Yeah, I don't know. I just really like the emphasis put on on all three of their little liar family. Do I also think maybe this conversation was a little bit of retconning? Yes. Yeah, but <laughs> I was gonna no. ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Perish I don't mind retconning. retconning, but it definitely, yeah, the first time I read it, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, when when you write retconning well, I, I still appreciate it. Um, I really love the emphasis that is put here on Will and Lyra being vulnerable to the specters now. 
Um, because they've been through some shit and they are older, you know? So wait, is puberty entirely determined by trauma? I don't, well. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) God. I just don't think that there's, I don't think you can equate growing up in puberty necessarily. True. Yeah, I think trauma can induce maturity. It can also inhibit it. But yeah, these characters are, have matured a lot since we've met them. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. But and even just like book one, Lyra, who again, you know, would lie for the fun of it for whatever and would just right. have a good time. And even when she had that like brief moment of her old self and it almost led to her being <laughs> falling down the abyss forever, you-, you can really see how much she has changed and grown throughout the books. And just because of what happens later, I like that there was that they are vulnerable to the specters now. And Lyra also was the only one to confront her death. That's true. That's true. And I think the whole book, Will has also been really wrestling with failure, like his failure with the knife. The anxiety of possibly failing again is a theme with him that is putting a special kind of pressure on his part of the story that is like making him more mature and appreciate like all of his actions and the actions of everyone around him more. And he got to talk to his dad a bit. He got closure too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. And Lyra got a goodbye with Lee. Well, that's it for this week. Join us next time where we'll be talking about chapters 30 through 32. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at FrancisWindrum. You can follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T-Pod, which will be owned by Elon Musk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You mean Asriel? Yeah, if Lord Asriel still allows 280 characters, but that's not enough for you and you want to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hologrammedia.com. I love that by the time this airs, there will actually be a resolution to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It will be a question. (laughs) But right now, we have no idea. This is going to, like, ground it very specifically in a moment in time. Is the cat dead? Is it alive? We don't know. Skrdinger's Elon. Great. And remember, if you're tripping out on dust while hundreds of feet in the air, make sure to think of breakfast. We can count. Does anybody have anything they have to get off their chest before I start? (laughs) But now that we're recording. I accept your silence. Yeah. (laughs) Are we going to... uh... I I was joking. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Welcome. Shit. <laughs> now I'm laughing. There we are. That's the blooper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> this description almost makes it like an underhanded critique on Lee and John's part to be like, is that where Roger went? I don't. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I <guess. laughs> Maybe we'll just, like, fight this war briefly and... What if oh. I went to war instead of where Roger was? <laughs> Shit, I, I, left the, I left some stuff in the dryer. Um, I'll be back, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know what they're called. I don't remember either. They are the Pelican the Tula, Boys. The Tuolapi. Yeah. Oh yeah, that sounds right. Tula. I just imagine them as pelicans. That, <laughs> that it, okay for everybody listening out there. It's been like six months since we recorded, and I did not read that word anywhere. I pulled it out of the depths of my soul. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if we sound a little rusty at all, we did we start we took a break for the holidays and then shit happened. So you know, it's it's been. What a do while. you mean? It's been a week since the last. <laughs> right, of course. Don't break the immersion, guys. <laughs> nope. Okay. Cool. Mm. I can't. <laughs> I can't talk. I have a piece of chocolate in my mouth, so I can't talk. Oh, I was gonna oh. wait, and to you go- didn't bring enough for everyone. I, I'm sorry. I was gonna wait to go after Alan because I feel like. Oh, mine works. Yeah, Pullman's great at that that sort of thing. I think just subtly, mm-hmm. n- n- like as much as he does love to beat our over our head, ugh, beat our heads. Wow. Okay. Beat us as over much the as head he. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Okay, well, we can cut it out. But like, because the only window left open is into the Mulefa world, the Mulefa could oh, yes, harness true. their armies to take down the Tulapi or whatever they're called. I definitely had that thought after reading yeah. the end of the book. I was like, so can the ghosts invade and fight? <laughs> yeah, but Pullman's not thinking that at all. <laughs> no, just us on our stupid podcast. Okay, ask a Brit. He says no. No. Next. Do not question the Brit. Do not, do not speak to me. <laughs> uh, Anya, why, why were you on the Jordan Peterson subreddit? Oh, I, I wasn't. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. where I. <laughs> uh huh. How do we have to have a talk? Like parents with the kids. How did you see this? <laughs> so this is. I think. That this How did you disable a... safe search? This is. A... <laughs> you, you are searching really hard for an excuse here. <laughs> Which is a cool idea. Like, really, this should be an anime. Uh, it's weird that an Englishman wrote three novel <laughs> trilogy about it, if you ask me. I've, oh, well, we don't need to get into anime. <laughs> I really had a lot to say about that, but just brush that aside. <laughs> that can wait till the last episode or something. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think that was one of the things. It has to be interesting, because the whole thing was like, if you live a boring-ass life, they can refuse you. Oh. If you don't have any good good true stories to tell they can be like no you didn't do anything mm. yeah it's a weird <laughs> he constructs a really weird existential <clears throat> afterlife where it's like i like it though where where he's basically like you need to live your life it's what lee says to lyra in this part he's like life is good go live life like don't worry about all this you know big stuff like just go do whatever you want and be awesome the way that you are, daughter. Have fun, be gay, do crimes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's Lyra's t-shirt from <laughs> I went to hell and all I got was this t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you get to the end of the book four chapters at a time. Perfect. We can also change our minds. Yeah. No, I think we have to stick to the plan we made seven months ago. <laughs>